0: Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians? Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Now, this book, Ephesians, isn't exactly a book. More technically, the book of Ephesians is a letter. Uh, That's the kind of book that it is. It's a letter. We call it an epistle. This epistle slash letter was written in the first century by the historic Apostle Paul, also known as Saul or Shaul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul, that's his Hebrew name, Paulos, Paul is what he would be known in, uh, you know, among his his Greek and Roman friends of the day. Paul wrote this letter, as I said, in the first century, if we want to get more approximate, around 61 AD. So you have in your hand, if your Bibles are open, and I hope they are, a letter from 61 AD written by the historic Apostle Paul... And he wrote this letter, in terms of its audience, to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. If you look up here, I will show you a picture of Ephesus on the map so that you can orient yourself to the geographic terrain. Now, as you're looking at the map, let's, uh, let's, let's fill in some things in terms of what's going on at the time. The first century was a hard time for Christians living in the dark reign of the Roman Empire. In fact, for a few centuries, Christians lived as public enemy number one. I think I, I shared recently with you of our modern poets Chuck D. and Flavor Flav and fighting the power of public enemy. Christians were public enemy. They were hunted down. They were tortured for sport in arenas. They were executed in the streets by Roman thugs. Paul himself, when he wrote this letter, he was writing from a jail cell. He was in prison for his faith. This letter is a prison letter, it's a prison epistle. In fact, this month we are reading in our book club, Martin Luther King Jr.'s book, Why We Can't Wait, which is based off of his prison letter, the letter from a Birmingham jail. So if you think of King writing a letter in jail to to the church, he's speaking to Christians in the letter of a Birmingham jail, you have a contemporary parallel to this ancient first century Paul is in jail for his faith. He is in jail for fighting the powers that be. And he is in jail thinking about the church, the state of the church. And so he writes Ephesians as he sits in a jail cell in the belly of Rome. Now, Paul, thinking about this church in Ephesus, Paul isn't only thinking about them. He thinks about other churches. For example, he thinks of the church in Philippi. He thinks of the church in Colossae. So he writes prison epistles. We have Ephesians uh, written to the church in Ephesus. We have Philippians written to the church in Philippi. We have Colossians written to the church in Colossae. So we have three prison epistles that he writes to churches. And he also wrote a prison letter uh, to a personal homie named Philemon. And hence, we got the book of Philemon. So these letters, written from a jail cell... You would expect, uh, you know, I mean, if I, I mean, if I'm writing from jail letters, it's probably going to have some woe is me, uh, you know, I hate the man, the government, I hate this place, you know, Rome, you know, I hate Rome. You know, you, you probably catch some bitterness and some grumpiness and yet Paul, in the inspiration of the spirit, you don't have a hint of it at all. Paul is just filled with joy in the face of persecution while he is in a, a jail cell. And, and has no idea what awaits him. Of course, the Roman Empire is a massive kingdom, so while many believers willingly stayed in oppressive places suffering for Christ, some believers in the first century were able to exist in places with less threats and more freedoms, which at any moment could have been taken away. So, you just, you just knew Rome is unstable. Rome is like your, your, fir- your, like I don't know your first teenage boyfriend or girlfriend. Just unstable. They're gonna not like you next week and be hanging out with someone else. You know, you just don't know. Do you still like me? What is going on? Being a Christian in Rome was a tricky situation. So believers throughout the empire would labor for the cause of Christ, making disciples, planting churches, and taking whatever opportunity they could in pockets of the Roman Empire where they could find some safety. In areas where churches were, were tolerated, however, uh, they still, those churches and believers, were not without challenges. For starters, there are spiritual dark forces. We believe in demons. We believe in principalities. Demons and principalities are attacking the churches. So in the unseen realm, in the seen realm, you have Rome and its oppression. But in the unseen realm, you have demonic forces attacking the church as well. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks a lot about cosmic principalities and demons and, and, and about the cosmic reign of Christ in disarming these powers and having victory over them. Along with the demonic dimension and the political dimension, you also have socio-cultural and religious dimensions that attack the integrity of the churches, not to mention many temptations in Roman culture. Uh, I'll spare the details, but... The Romans were were a kinky lot of people doing all sorts of sordid things. You think of, I don't know, Sin City, Vegas, or whatever. Uh, It it got nothing on Rome. Rome is just full of, of sinful booby traps all over the place. Now, Ephesus was a leading cultural and economic center of the Roman Empire. The city is a thriving port city in the first century. It is situated off of major roads that bring in trade and travel. As well, Ephesus is a place that is known for entertainment and sports. If you look up here, I'll show you what archaeologists have unearthed in this massive stadium in Ephesus that seats over 24,000 people. We're all proud about the, the Rams and SoFi and our big stadium. You know, Look, making big old stadiums is, is not a new thing. They had stadiums, and they filled them up, and they had shows... I'll spare the details. They did all kinds of weird stuff in these stadiums. Additionally to stadiums, archaeologists have unearthed public squares, gymnasiums, theaters, all kinds of of buildings and shops and what have you. Uh, Looking at this picture, you can imagine the Apostle Paul in the city. You can imagine him in these stadiums and getting to know the culture and reaching out to the people and helping the church there. You don't have to just use your imagination. Thankfully, you can use the Bible to paint some background here. In the book of Acts, Acts chapters 18 through 20, if you jot that down and want to study it this week, you can read about Paul's time in Ephesus. During his second missionary journey, as we call it, in Acts 18, he spent some time there in Ephesus. On his uh, next mission trip, his third mission trip, as we call it, in Acts 19, we read that he was in Ephesus for some years. In fact, in Acts 20, verse 31, Paul himself uh, uh, accounts that he was in Ephesus for exactly three years. After three years in a city, you get to know a place. You get to know the people. Here's an artistic rendering, if you look up here, of the place, showing various buildings and cultural hubs in Ephesus. Beyond the buildings, the entertainment, the sports, the economic prosperity, there was a dark spiritual presence over the city which would have made it very difficult for believers in, in, in Ephesus. There was a thriving pagan cult devoted to Artemis in Ephesus. There was a massive temple to her in the city as well. Here you have a, a picture of, the, of Artemis statues. It's a, a woman uh, with a whole lot of breasts. Uh, she's a fertility goddess, and they do all kinds of kinky things in the name of Artemis. And there's a big old shrine to Artemis. In addition to Artemis and the massive temple in Ephesus to Artemis, there's upwards of over 50 other gods and goddesses that archaeologists have been able to trace down in the area. So locals who lived there in Ephesus, pilgrims who came to Ephesus to get their party on and do weird spiritual stuff, they would come there because it was a city that's full of gods. Zeus was there, Aphrodite was there, Apollo was there. They got, they got a lot of the big-name gods in the town. They even have Egyptian gods. Isis and Serapis was worshipped in Ephesus. Now, that said, many folks in those days worshipped more than one god. And, and, in fact, in addition to worshipping more than one god, they would sort of mix and match their gods. It's, uh, it's like when you go to the, the yogurt place. Uh, uh, when, I, when I was a kid, we didn't really have those. You went to Baskin-Robbins, and, you know, it's like you get one scoop, you know. Uh, pick, pick one scoop. Oh, can I have two? You, know, you, you get one. You get one scoop. You go to these yogurt places and you can just mix everything around. And my kids, they're all kind of, just like, you're going to put gummy worms and cookies together? That doesn't sound right, but whatever. They just mix it all together. That's what they did with their gods. We're going to take a little Zeus, put a little, you know, put a little Serapis, you know, and uh, oh, who's this? Jesus. What's throw a little Jesus in there. So this presented a challenge for Christian faith and discipleship because you could be talking to people like, hey, you want to believe in Jesus? They go, yeah, sign me up, you know. And then you go over to their house for dinner and they got all kinds of gods on the mantle. You're like, what's going on? I thought you were on team Jesus. Oh, yeah, I I got other teams I root for too. No, 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 you got to pick a team when you're rolling with Jesus. You, You can't just, he can't be one among many. So pagans in Ephesus would have balked at the Christian claim that there was only one true God. They, they would have, that would have been a patently absurd to them in their culture. What, what do you mean, one God? Wait, wait, wait. And you think your God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? Oh, no, that's just crazy. They, they would have thought that was insane in Ephesus. Now, that said, look at the opening of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. He opens by talking about the one God. He opens by talking about the Father and the the Son. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You see the Father and the Son. Look at verse 13. He starts talking about the Spirit. This letter and and all of Paul's letters, they just overflow with this triune faith that there is one and only one God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. This brings me to the opening point on your outline that you have in front of you today, God and depravity, looking at the opening chapters of Ephesians. Given the depraved darkness of Ephesus and the pervasive influence of pagan shrines, and worship centers in the city, the message of the one God, as I said, would, would have been crazy to them, a radical claim. Now, uh, you know, we're not above the text. This is still a radical claim for us today in Los Angeles. Uh, people are fine with being spiritual. You hear people say, Oh, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, whatever that mindless distinction means. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual. And typically, in that is this idea that, like, you you know whatever god whatever and you just are like you know or mixing them or whatever you know and you're you're spiritual or whatever and and that's that's cool it's cool to be spiritual but when it comes to the claim that there's only one god there's only one way people freak out in our culture how can you say there's only one way how can you be so narrow-minded so narrow-minded and I'd like to point out the benefits of being narrow-minded, frankly. I mean, our sister uh, Angelique was up here giving testimony about, you know, having, having uh, surgery and getting cut open. If you're going in for, uh, you know, to, to scoop some breast cancer out and you got a doctor in there who, who can't tell the difference between a knee, an elbow, and a breast, uh, you need to get a new doctor. You need a narrow-minded doctor who knows what they're doing. If you're going to get on an airplane, you don't want a pilot who's open-minded, I like to try new things. No, I want a pilot who's narrow-minded, who does it the way it's supposed to be done. When you're doing mathematics and they ask what 2 plus 2 is, I don't want 16, I don't want 81, I don't want, I don't want open mind. I want, I want the truth. I want to know what it is. And when it comes to 2 plus 2, the fact of the matter is there is only one right answer to that. And all other numbers are wrong. And so it is with God. It's not, it's not like some, you know, we're not, we're not trying to like put other religions down or anything. We're just saying, yeah, you know, that's fine. It's just, it's just not true. I'm not, <laughs> who are you to judge me? So you think I'm, I'm wrong? Well, yeah. Well, if you think I'm wrong, it sounds like you're judging me. So if we can't judge, then why are you judging me for judging that? I mean, this is a vicious cycle. Where are we going with this? Alas, we're like Ephesus. People don't like this claim that there is one God. Now, back in Ephesus, the, the exclusivity of the one God would have been an issue. But uh, also, in, in Ephesus and in the Roman Empire as a whole, they are anti-Semitic. The, 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 the Gentiles of Rome, hate, they hate Jewish people. So, so Gentile Ephesians would have been scandalized by the claim that this one God that we're talking about, who's the true God, it's the God of the Jewish people? No, no, not the Jewish people, because they were anti-Semitic. They, they would have been scandalized that Israel's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is, is our Savior, and we have to bow our knee to a, to a Jewish man. Even more that this Jewish man is God, the Son, in the flesh. That would have scandalized them, because the Gentile religions of the day were all about escaping the physical realm. Whereas the Christian faith actually proclaimed a God, In the immaterial realm, who has entered into our physical material realm, even taking on matter, physicality, himself, when the eternal Son became a man in human flesh to die on a cross for our sins and redeem us and secure our future. The resurrection of both our bodies and the earth itself. That was radical. They're anti-Semitic, they're not going to like the Jewish stuff. They're anti-material, they're not going to like God becoming a man stuff. They're, they're polytheistic, they're not going to like one God stuff. Now, without the regenerating work of the Spirit through the power of the gospel preached in that city, Ephesus would have remained depraved. None would have come to Christ in repentance and faith. Thankfully, thankfully... I said, verse 13, he started talking about the Spirit. Look at what he says about the Spirit in verse 13. The Spirit was on the move through the gospel preached. In him, verse 13, Ephesians 1, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul sees the work of the Spirit moving through the message of truth, the gospel. Those are his words. The powerful work. The Spirit's powerful work secures the believer in salvation, sealing them sealing them by God himself. Without God doing this, there would be no hope of salvation. There would be no hope of, of Gentiles in Ephesus coming to, to the Jewish Messiah and, 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 and swearing allegiance to him and giving their lives to him. Now keep in mind that depravity is not limited to Ephesus. It is a sobering reality for every human conceived and born in this world. We are born depraved. We are destined for darkness, but God. I love those two words, but God. Isn't it great to hear, but God? You see, while we are destined for darkness, while, while we are depraved, but God took those who were destined for darkness and destined them for himself. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 4. He chose us, Ephesians 1 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us, verse 5, to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Now, according to the scripture, salvation is something that God chooses to do to us, Ephesians 1 is saying. And the rest of the Bible is screaming. He's rescuing the depraved and and the damned from the penalty of their sins. In their sins, contrary to popular belief, humans are not good, nor spiritually alive. You might say, I came to church to be inspired. This is a Debbie Downer. I know, you're not good. I, I know. And we're in a trophy culture where everyone gets a ribbon and... Everyone wins and we, we don't play sports anymore to win. We're just here to have fun. No, no, no. Let me break it to you. Let me break it to you if it hasn't been broken down. In the competition, one team wins and one team loses. And, and life is filled with these sobering realities. And the most sobering of them all is the reality that we are not inherently good. We, 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 we are not spiritual either. Our spirituality is superficial and man-made. We're not running around seeking after God, as the Bible tells us. No one seeks after God, no, not one. Now, I don't say you're not good or humans are not good because uh, I'm being judgmental. I'm saying it because that's, that, that's the fact of the matter. If you, go, if you go to the doctor, going back to our, our sister and her sharing this morning, and, and, you, and you get the news that the mammogram comes back and you have cancer, you, you don't look at the doctor and say, who are you to judge me? You know, I don't believe that. No, I don't. I name and claim something different. No, no, no it doesn't work that way. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Truth is not different about your feelings. And every time I step on the scale, I'm reminded of that. I'm like, I really got to get back to the gym. Uh, you mean scale? No, it's just, the, it's just the fact of the matter. It's just the fact of the matter. You have cancer, the doctor tells you. That's not unloving. That's not judgmental. It's bad news, and they're bringing the bad news to you. What if they didn't tell you? What if they just kept that to themselves? And they like, oh, I don't want to say anything. Then, then, then you can't g- get all the early stuff and, and get it taken care of and, and you know, maybe make it through because the doctor, for some strange reason, thought that it was somehow unloving to bring bad news to people. Well, as a, as a doctor, as a physician of the soul... My responsibility as a minister of God's word is to bring the bad news that we all have a cancer. And there is only one who can scoop it out. And his name is Jesus. We are not alive. We are not good. Far from being alive, we're actually dead. Draw your eyes at the text. Ephesians 2 verse 1, what does it say? What does it say? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too, formerly in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were are by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. Vipers and diapers, as I like to say. We're, we're born sinners. And if you don't believe that, we do have some uh, volunteer positions in Kids Church where you can you can go find it out you can find it out real quick put two babies in a in a little bin and give them one ball and see what they do oh you play first no no you go first right our first words are like no and mine and we're children of wrath depravity entails this people will still persist but no I'm, I'm a good person I'm a good person I, I mean I'm not I'm not Hitler you know I'm a good person isn't it interesting that Hitler is often the standard in these conversations? There's probably a good Kanye joke right here. But uh, anyway, you know, like if you think, you know, like, like if, if you come to my house and you want to date one of my daughters or something, and I go, you know, are you, what kind of person? You know, I'm no Hitler. You know, it's like, close the door, uh, get the dog and the gun, uh, don't come back. What? Do you, what, do you, what? You're not Hitler? What what standard are you using to ascertain that you're good in in this kind of conversation? It's an honest question. Because because the standard of goodness is determined by the law. And here's the thing about the law. The law is indifferent. Lady justice is, is blindfolded and holds the scales and the sword. Here's the nature of law, right? Law punishes you when you break it. Law doesn't reward you when you make it. You will never be pulled over by the police. And, and, and they'll tell you, we've been noticing that. You just always drive under the speed limit. Uh, you know, uh, here's a get out of jail card. You know, uh, here, here, have one on us. You can drive crazy all day today. We'll write it up. And you just, you've been so good. Your goodness now uh, frees you to break the law. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You can't stand in a court of law after having murdered a man and appeal to, appeal to the judge and jury, think of all the people I haven't killed, right? It was just that one guy. I mean, he kind of had it coming. But think about all the other people I haven't killed. But this is the way people think. They think, well, I'm, I'm good, you know, because there's all these good things. And you go, okay, but have you, have you sinned once? Have you broken God's law once? I haven't. You're lying. You just broke it. Okay, right? You have. And because you have, now you incur the penalty of the law. And the penalty of the law is death and judgment. That's so mean. A God of love wouldn't do that. No, no, no. No, no. He he, he really would. Because if I murdered your dad and stood in front of the judge and was like, but I'm a good guy. And the judge was like, you know what? I I like you, the blue glasses, I'm feeling you, you know, just, you know, promise you won't do it again and let me go. You would weep in that courtroom and say an act of injustice was done. The guilty got away. The guilty got away. The standard of goodness is the law of God. The law of God condemns us. We deserve death and we deserve punishment in the afterlife. Lest death allow us to escape. Incidentally, in the case of Hitler, right, he... He killed himself. What, you think you're going to escape God by doing that? No, you you will stand before him and he will judge you for his sins. And that not only is loving, it's also just and true. Now, again, I told you the two words that I really like to hear. They're, but God. But God. Look at the text, Ephesians 2, verse 4. What does it say? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. When when, when you get something you don't deserve, we call that grace. When you're pardoned and you were guilty, that's grace. Grace. Right? When you earned it, right, and you got it coming, that, right, that's what you deserve. But when you, when you don't, that, that's what we call grace. Uh, it, it's been broken down this way. It's a very creative thing to have in mind. Grace isn't just not getting what you didn't deserve. But if you think of the letters, G-R-A-C-E, in a Christian context, in this conversation about God and our depravity, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. He's the one who paid it. It was at his expense, his, his death. By grace, look at verse eight, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now for pagans in Ephesus, that's radical and pagans in Los Angeles, that's, that's radical, right? Because uh, uh, fallen spirituality, man-made religion, man-made spirituality is all based on works. You just trying to be good, you trying to do more good. Oh, you, do, you did bad, and now you got to do good. We do, this even, we do this with God. We do this with relationships. Oh, you, know, you got in trouble with your spouse, and now you're washing the dishes and doing... And you're trying to pay off what you did. It's, it's, it's the default screen in our souls. We think that we can somehow be good and do away with it. It doesn't work that way. Going back to the murder illustration, it doesn't matter how many old ladies I walk across the street... The guy that I murdered is still dead, and there's no way to atone for that by my works. Now, Roman culture, Roman culture is all based on works. A Roman culture, as I said, it was syncretistic, mixing their gods around in their spirituality. And so new believers coming into the church in Ephesus, they needed to be taught. They needed to hear this over and over. It's by grace. It's by grace. But God, look, here's the bad news. You're not good, but God is good and gives you his goodness for free through faith when you come to him. That pause was where you guys insert amen, right? Uh, Solicit the amens up in here. Um, They needed to be taught this. Paul is proclaiming this to them. Christ is not one God among many. Christ is not to be mixed with gods. Further, as I shared about the anti-Semitism, the first century world is full of ethnocentrism and racism. Aren't we glad that we've moved on, right? We're, We're still wrestling with that. And so there's ethnocentrism, there's racism, there's theological questions, there's relationships that are strained, there's uh, cultural comforts and things that need to be challenged. And that's what Paul is doing with this message of grace. Paul is no stranger, mind you, to being canceled and attacked for his faith by pagans, not to mention his own people. Paul was a Jewish man and he loved the Jewish people. He's a worshiper of the Jewish Messiah that many Jewish people had rejected. And that was a complex issue in the first century, given the dynamics of the the racial tensions between Jews and Gentiles. Um, uh, Paul, having been a a follower of the Jewish Messiah and a friend of Gentile people, would have caught it from both sides. His Jewish community would have thought he was a sellout because he's hanging out with the oppressors of their people. And, 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 and they would have thought this was, you know, this is crazy that you, you're hanging out with Gentiles. And then the Gentiles are going to think he, he's crazy because their culture is highly anti-Semitic. And then that culture, this this Gentile culture, is works-based, and in the Jewish culture, there's a large community of people who are misunderstanding the law of Moses and relying on works of the Old Covenant in order to sanctify and even save themselves. And so what Paul is saying, that it's not by works, would have been radical in the Jewish context, radical in the Gentile context, and it would have put him right in the middle of this divide. He would have been hated on on both sides. He was, as I said, no stranger to being canceled and attacked for his faith. He speaks to this divide, though. He's he's not a coward. He he goes to Twitter hard in the paint. He's hard in the paint on Twitter. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember, chapter 2, verse 11. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called to uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you, Gentiles... We're right at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of, of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, I mean, that's kind of hard, what he's saying about the Gentiles, but again, you know, it's the truth. You guys were outside of the commonwealth. You would have been excluded from these things. You can imagine the Jewish people in the congregation are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, Paul. Check them. Check them. Yeah. But... Verse 13, now in Christ, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing, the the barrier of the dividing wall. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, Jews and Gentiles. The socio-cultural, religio-spiritual divides of these ethnic groups, what we call races today, was handled in the gospel. Contrary to fundamentalist and separatist churches today that reduce the gospel to merely humanity getting right with God, the gospel speaks, yes, to humanity getting right with God, and it also speaks to humanity getting right with their fellow man. Depravity doesn't just mess up our relationship with God, it messes up our relationships with everybody right? Some spouses are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, right? It, it makes marriages have fights. It makes friends have fallouts. It, sin messes, messes up all relational dynamics between man and God and man and his fellow man. What is happening in Ephesus, however, is a powerful picture of the gospel at work. The dividing wall has been torn down. Draw, let's go into chapter 3, verse 6. He says the Gentiles, verse 6, are what? fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, verse 7, which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me for the working of his power. Yeah, at that point, the Gentiles would have been looking at the Jewish people in the congregation. That's what I'm talking about. I'm a fellow heir. What? What? <laughs> you know, like, you, like, we're one. We're one in Christ. Christ has made us right with God and he's making us right with each other. And so Paul is writing from jail to tell them, To tell them, act right. Look at what Christ has done. If Christ doesn't hold anything against you and forgives you, you guys shouldn't have any beef with each other. You've been made one. And more than being made one in some abstract context, you've been made one as a church in the city of Ephesus. And there's a whole lot of darkness out there. So when people come in there, into that church, they need to see the gospel manifest in people's relationships and in their proclamation of the truth. This brings us to the next point on your outline, governance and duty. Draw your eyes into the fourth chapter. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul wants the church to govern itself rightly. Paul wants the believers in the church to see their duty to God and one another. He speaks of conduct or duty. Uh, he uses the metaphor of walking, you see here in chapter 4, verse 1. You, you ought to walk this way. Walk this way, talk this way. Anyway, throughout the, the Bible, walking is, a, is a, it's a, it's a metaphor to describe one's lifestyle. In the Jewish Bible... We, we see this concept of walking, uh, it's referred to as halakha. Halakha, this is from the Hebrew word, to walk, halakha. It is used in, in reference in Jewish tradition to the legal rulings of the community, the, the laws of the community, the traditions of the community, the halakha. We, we, have a, we, have a con, we have a social contract with one another as a congregation. Members in this church, we agree to be bound by this book to love, to forgive, to not cheat, to not lie in these things. We have a halakha, that is how we walk, how, how we roll, and that's important to the governance of the duty of the church. We see here that Paul's concerned uh, about order in the text. Verses 1 through 3 speak of order. The halakha, how they are to walk, how they are to be united. That said, we are not called to have unity for unity's sake. We are called to have unity for Christ's sake. The collective behavior of unity or peace is not at any cost. Uh, There are things, particularly doctrines, beliefs, that we will not compromise for sake of being together or getting along. Can't we all just get along? Yeah, we can, but we are also not going to allow nonsense up in here. So it's not unity for unity's sake, it's unity for Christ's sake. And there there are things that will break unity... But what ought not to break unity are matters of impatience, not being gentle, not being diligent, not being humble. Verse 4, there is, look at chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body, one spirit. You were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. Here Paul speaks of ordinances. Ordinances are rituals and rhythms, rites, that the church does when we gather to celebrate. We, we see a reference here to baptism, which is an example of an ordinance, something that we do when we celebrate the picture of the work of the gospel in washing us. The water pictures washing, which is what God has done to us in our souls. The water also pictures of welcoming into God's family, which is what God has done when he saves us. So there's water baptism and there's spirit baptism. The spirit baptism precedes the water baptism. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, look at this. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, these ethnic tensions ought to go away. Whether slaves are f- free, class tensions ought to go away. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Upon conversion, the forgiven sinner is baptized by the spirit into the church. This is an invisible gift. After conversion, when the believer is baptized visibly before the church, that saint is picturing the work of the gospel in the ordinance. It's a powerful ordinance, a powerful picture, baptism, and along with baptism, we picture the gospel in taking communion, which we do after the sermon, and it reminds us of the body and blood of Christ that has made us one body here in Ephesians four, 4 as we visibly eat the... the the, the, the piece of the cracker, as we visibly drink the, the small sample of the cup, together we're picturing the invisible unity of the Spirit in making us one. Now, speaking of visible and invisible, it's worth pausing to give short attention to these phrases, particularly as we use them, and this is important, the visible church and the invisible church. Lest there be anyone listening who are not aware of these categories, let me give you a visual and a quick explanation here. The visible church is the body of all believers— around the world, as God sees it. There are people meeting around the world this weekend to worship Jesus, and God sees that. That's his invisible church. The visible church is the body that we see, that we see with our eyes. Now, that said, not everyone who attends the church visible is actually saved. So, in a visible gathering, God sees those in that gathering who are his own, and hence the overlap of the visible and invisible. They used to say, you know, Walking into a garage doesn't make you a car any more than walking into a church building makes you a Christian. There there are those who genuinely are a part of the invisible church in the visible gathering. We read in Second Timothy chapter two verse nineteen this and I quote The Lord knows those who are his. Further we read in first John two nineteen about those who left churches, and John says in first John two nineteen, they went out from us because they were not of us. So there is the church, as God sees it, the true church, which is invisible, but the invisible church must manifest itself visibly. And this morning, that, that, that's what we're doing. Look around the room. That's what we're doing. We're picturing the one body as we've gathered here. There are other things vying for your attention this morning. There are other places that you could be. But you chose, and I thank you for choosing, to be here to show us the visible church. Now, the visible church is not the building, it's not the physical trimmings, it's not our stuff. It's us. It's us here. And so when we come here and we see each other, when we come here and we hear your voices singing, right? The worship aren't the guys up here on the stage leading us, it's the church. We hear the church. We hear prayer. We see each other. This is all God glorifying himself in the visible church. The distinction of visible and invisible also overlaps with the distinction uh, between what we call the universal church and the local church. Del Rey Church is a local church. That said, on any given Sunday, we have visitors from out of town who belong to other local churches. They're not a part of the local church. They're just worshiping with us, but they have home churches that they are a part of. However, we're all a part of what we call the universal church. Historically, it was called the Catholic Church from the Greek word... Catholicos, which is a combination of two words, kata concerning and holos whole, concerning the whole, the Catholic just it meant the universal church. It wouldn't be hundreds, hundreds of years. You take the church history class, you'll find out on Wednesday nights where that term Catholicos was hijacked for a particular wing of of, of, a, of a church in Rome. But the idea of of a Catholic church or a universal church is just reminding us what God is doing at Delray Church. He's doing it at Cornerstone Church, he's doing it at this church and that church, he's doing it at Bethany Baptist Church, he's doing he's doing it all around. We're a part of something that's crazy and big and awesome. And I love that, and particularly in small churches. In, a, in, in North America, to boot, where so many people think that if it's large, it's because God's blessing it. We are a part, Delray Church, of something that is so much bigger than us. We are a part of something that is massive. And I've traveled around the world, and I've, I've seen it. And one day, one day, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and we see his church gathered from the nations, it's going to be insane. Now, the church, in the, in the meantime, we have these order and ordinances to picture him. As well, we have orthodoxy, which is important to us. Ortho means right or straight. You know, uh, some, some of y'all had to go to the orthodontist because those teeth weren't straight. You had to get them straightened out. I was one of them. Yeah, I was that teenager, you know, uh, awkward with it, but they straighten them out. The orthodontist straightens out those crooked teeth. Ortho, straight, doxa, mean, can mean teaching, worship, or glory. We want to make sure that our teaching, our worship is, is straight. We don't want to come up in here with our teeth all messed up, uh, saying stuff about God that's not true. You don't, you don't want to do that. Look at Ephesians 4. He says, we have one faith. Jude 3 speaks about the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. 2 Timothy 2, 2, we read about the faith being passed down to the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, we read about holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And doing so, Hebrews 10, 24, within the community... Hebrews 10 25, not forsaking the assembling together. Our right, our right proclamation of God, our right beliefs about God, they actually matter. And think about this in relationships, because sometimes when people hear doctrine or orthodoxy, it sounds cold or whatever. No, no, no. When you love someone, you want to think right thoughts about them. When you love someone, you want to know about them and you, you know, you, you want, you, that's what you want. My wife had a, had, a, had a birthday, right? I need to know that birth date, right? <laughs> and if I didn't, then what's my wife gonna think? Oh, you don't, you don't, you don't love me. You don't know my birthday, right? We, in fact, her, her birthday, our anniversary, there, boom, 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 you know, and then the kids, boom, 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 boom. It all, it all comes together in February. Part of loving is knowing the truth about dates and Things and all, all of that. And so too with God, there's dates. He's done stuff in history at certain times that we want to know. There's things that are true about him that we want to know. And so if I can picture order, ordinances and orthodoxy, how they all work together, I would picture it like this. In, in our order, we have things. We have principles we obey. We have pastors who lead us. We, we the church, are the priests of this congregation. The royal priesthood in the language of Hebrews. We have people serving, we have our pride being checked, that gives us order. We have our ordinances that are all centered around the word. As the word is declared, like right, right now, as the word is displayed when we're going to have communion after this, as the word is delighted when we, when we pray and we sing, as the word is discipled out in our, in our lives as we gather during the week and we press into each other in community groups and Bible Institute, as the word is distributed as you take it out into the world, those, those are our ordinances that picture the things we're talking about. In orthodoxy, there's certain fundamentals for our faith about truth, the triune God, and trust, and the text of Scripture, and the the cross, and what the cross accomplishes. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. He's he's, he's drilling down a creed here, a, a statement of faith here. And, and all of this isn't for purposes of just having right doctrine, it's, it's for purposes of being one in the Spirit together. As, as we do these ordinances, as we do these things, we're, we're being reminded not of mere rituals or rites or whatever, we're being reminded that the Spirit is making us one. That Jesus is making disciples through the Spirit. We're being reminded that our church's health comes from the Spirit who is at work in the invisible universal church manifest in visible local churches. It's the Spirit, Him, the Spirit, who is doing this stuff. I'm reminded of the quote of A.W. Tozer as he was thinking about the state of the church in North America in the 20th century. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, however, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. The Ephesians knew the work of the Spirit. And so Paul is reminding them of this. Tozer, this quote just kind of echoes out as an indictment on the church today that often relies on persons and personalities and consumerism and marketing and not the Spirit. The prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 4, 6, This is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God's people are to be a people of the Spirit, and his Spirit will empower us and draw us, next point on our outline, in grace and dedication. Look at verse 7, but to each one is given a grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 7, each one is given a measure of Christ's gift. The word grace here, charis, is a word that is used for spiritual gifts. Uh, the grace that is given to us, the Holy Spirit making us one, is also pouring out gifts on us. Here, here you see uh, this list here from Romans 12, Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, a list of the spiritual gifts. We are told in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, that each one of us has received a special gift and we are to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here in verse 7 of of Ephesians 4, to each one of us grace was given according to Christ's measure. What is he getting at here? Spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts, those graces, we use in dedication to one another. Speaking of spiritual gifts, as we continue, there is more talk of gifts. Look at verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, graces to men. Now, you may notice in your Bibles that verse 8 contains a quote. The Apostle Paul here in verse 8 is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18 specifically. We read from Psalm 68 here in our public reading of Scripture this morning, you may recall. In the original context of the psalm, the author calls on God to rescue his people, Israel, and then celebrates God in triumph as God ascends Mount Zion after delivering his people through God's earthly king. There's messianic overtones in this earthly king and triumph in Zion, and, and they're very loud, and Paul ties those to the Messiah, Jesus. And his triumph over our sin, our death, demons, principalities, evil, when he died on the cross, when he rose from the dead, when he ascended into heaven... He was riding up the mountain of Zion. Verse 9, look at the text, Ephesians 4. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens so that he might fill all things. This brings me to the next point on the outline. The next point is about gifts and descent. As noted already, this is a reference to the psalm, Psalm 68. This is a reference to Jesus' ascension, which we read about in the Gospels and also Acts 1-9 and other places. The Apostle Paul is tying together this riding up on Zion to Christ's work on the cross and defeating uh, the enemies of sin and death and the devil and then ascending to the Zion of the heavens. In the ancient world, during a war, a deliverer who rescues his people would pillage the enemy. Right? You know, Debo's going to beat you up and take your bike and ride off with it. You, you, you beat someone up and you take their stuff. So, ancient kings, they, they beat another power and then they take their stuff. It's called booty or spoils of war. And the triumphant one would then take the spoils of war and go back to their kingdom and, and take those that they liberated and take all that stuff and give all the stuff away to the people that are liberated. Now, in the case of Christ, Christ's enemies, death, sin, demons, they have no booty, no spoils to offer. And so Christ takes away their power over his people, and then he pours out the Spirit on them. It is worth noting that traditionally, Psalm 68, this, what Paul's quoting from here in Ephesians 4, was read traditionally in the Jewish culture on the day of Pentecost, which, according to Acts chapter 2, is the day when God poured out his Spirit on the people. New Testament scholar Dr. Clinton Arnold writes that he, Jesus, gave gifts to men. This passage differs from the Hebrew and Greek versions of Psalm 68, 18, which read, you receive gifts from men. Paul here appears to be citing an early Aramaic version of the psalm, preserved in a targum, that contains he gave. The targum interprets the giving as a reference to Moses' giving of the law. What makes Psalm 68 all the more significant to this context is is that the Jews were accustomed to hearing this passage read aloud in their synagogues on Pentecost as a designated day for reading it. The law of Moses is no longer to be seen as the focal point and fulfillment of this psalm, but rather the incarnation, the descent, the resurrection and exaltation, the ascent of Christ Because of Christ's ascent to the right hand of God, he could send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to incorporate believers into the body of Christ and endow them with special abilities for building up the body of Christ. After quoting Psalm 68, and it's tied to Jesus' ascension to the heavenly Zion, Paul also speaks about descent, uh, Christ descending to the lower parts of the earth. In Christian theology or theological tradition, this question of like, what's going on here? What's he descending to? Has become known as the doctrine of the harrowing of hell. Uh, harrowing is an old English word, it's kind of fallen out of use, but it, it, it means descent. The Latins called it descensus Christi ad infernos. And the doctrine of harrowing posits that after Jesus died and before he rose, his, his soul, uh, before he rose, joining his, his soul and his body together, in between those, he, he paid a pit stop in hell. This is the doctrine of the harrowing. In other words, when Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins, that wasn't enough. He had to go do some jail time in hell to handle the rest of it. Now, there are a variety of versions over the centuries, and there's not time to survey all of the harrowing versions. But I want to provide some resources for it for those of you who are interested in studying it outside of this talk this morning. But, but quickly, I do need to address this because there's a lot of bad teaching on it. Uh, if you come from a Catholic background, you've heard this teaching. Uh, some uh, wings of the Protestant Reformation as well. Martin Luther and Lutheranism maintains this. In terms of history, it, it doesn't go back to the Apostles or the early church. It appears in the Apostles' Creed around 650. The original Apostles' Creed doesn't say anything about Christ descending. That was added 500 years later. So when the Ephesians were reading this, they would have had no idea about harrowing doctrines in church history. Um, they would have no idea about Catholics and Lutherans, let alone Jehovah Witnesses who have a harrowing doctrine that's really cray-cray, uh, let alone the, I can't help myself, the word faith movement that goes crazy on this. Joyce Myers, Kenneth Copeland. So, uh, I got to show you, sorry, we're running out of time, but let me move quickly. Kenneth Copeland, maybe you heard of him, big guy, TBN. He says this, it wasn't a physical death on the cross that paid the price for sin. Anybody can do that. <laughs> what? What? Uh, I'm, quoting, I'm quoting Kenneth Copeland. You got the references there. He said, Satan conquered Jesus on the cross and took his spirit to the dark regions of hell. Well, the devil, the devil did that? Because I'm reading in my Bible how he disarmed him, punked him, whooped whooped him on the cross. What are you talking about? Copeland describes it this way. Jesus allowed the devil to drag him into the depths of hell. He allowed himself to come under Satan's control. Every demon in hell came down on him to annihilate him. They tortured him beyond anything anybody had ever conceived. For three days he suffered everything there is to suffer. And Copeland claims that Jesus did all of this so that he could, in his words, uh, whoop the devil in his own backyard, end quote. What, What is this madness here? You're getting all of that from Ephesians 4? I mean, even, even Joel Osteen jumps on this bandwagon, interestingly enough, my whipping boy Osteen. Osteen popularly never talks about hell. Never, you know. He's on Oprah, he's on, you know, he never talks about the bad news. Uh, he doesn't talk about the good news either, but he never talks about hell. Uh, but he, he's willing to talk about hell when it comes to this harrowing uh, doctrine. He says, the Bible indicates that for three days, Jesus went into the very depths of hell. Right into the enemy's territory. He did battle with Satan face to face. Can you imagine what a showdown that was? It was good versus evil, right versus wrong, holiness versus filth. Here, the two most powerful forces in the universe have come together to do a battle for the first time in history. What? For the first time in history? You do know that Jesus is eternal, okay? You do know that he was in the garden with Adam and Eve. You do know that he's been fighting evil for a long time. Since the beginning of the fall of man, he's been fighting evil. And you do know that he's not arm wrestling the devil. It's not a fight. It's not, oh, you you almost got me, devil. Oh, 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 you know, "Oh, oh, oh, It's It's not a power struggle. He's omnipotent God. Even in the book of Revelation, in the end, when Satan's cast in the pit, Jesus doesn't have to do it. He sends a little angel. A little. I like to picture the angel as like the little chubby Cupid or something. You go get him and throw him in the pit. He's, po- he's powerless. He's all bark, no bite. There, there isn't a fight. This is, this is King Jesus. Have you lost your mind? The trouble here is, first, that's not in Ephesians 4. Second, that makes the cross a flop. If he didn't beat him on the cross, then the cross failed. Third, it, it makes Jesus struggling, it makes Jesus is like impotent figure who's on par with the devil? He's, on, he's in a power struggle with the devil? That's not the all-powerful Christ of the Bible. The descent of Ephesians 4 is the incarnation, when the eternal Son came to earth. It's the incarnation, when he took on flesh. It's biological death, when he died. As Jesus told the thief on the cross, in terms of where he would go after he died... Luke twenty-three forty-three. Today you will be with me in paradise. The cross finished the work. When his soul separated from his body at the death, as his corpse hung on that cross of Calvary, he entered into paradise. As he cried out on the cross in John 19, 30, It is finished, and surely it was finished. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4. The descent is his incarnation, entering into the world, descending to the earth. Paul writes this way in Philippians. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, He talks this way in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus coming down and humbling himself and then Jesus being exalted and every knee bowing down in the heavens and the earth. There's no power struggle. This isn't the doctrine of harrowing. It's the doctrine of humiliation and incarnation. People will ask, well, what about 1 Peter chapter 3? The Petrine regions. I'm not preaching Peter this morning, so there's not really time to get into that. But if you want to read something on it, I know many of you, who've been in the church long enough, you've probably picked up Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and on pages 586 through 594, there's a fuller treatment. But I have 1 Peter chapter 3 in front of you, and you can see that it speaks of Christ's death in verse 18. You see that? And then in verse 19, it speaks of Christ preaching to spirits in prison. Word-faith cult movements jump on this verse, and they use it to contend that Jesus went to hell and preached the gospel after he died, and had a revival meeting giving people who lived before him uh, t- uh, time to hear the message and respond. You know, it's like, ah, oh, I'll go down to hell and give him a second chance. Now, ne- never mind that Hebrews 9.27 clearly says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Never mind that there's n- not a second chance in the underworld. Never mind that Luke 16.26, Jesus explicitly taught that there's a chasm between heaven and hell that cannot be crossed. But in this case, with Peter in front of you, if you look at the text, it specifies when this preaching occurs. It doesn't occur after Jesus died. It occurs, look at the text, when? In the days of Noah. Remember, Jesus is God. The Son, one with the Father. The Son was on the move well before Christmas. Okay? He was preaching through the prophets in the days of old, revealing the triune God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter says that the Son was revealing himself in the days of old via the prophets. The spirits in prison in the days of Noah either refer to human spirits that Noah preached to, who did not obey, verse 20, and hence are now suffering, spirits in prison, verse 19, or it could refer to spirits of angelic beings. And here we think about the book of Genesis, chapter 6, and the Nephilim, But I got to land the plane, so we're not even going to talk about that. Let's move on here. Let's give some direction. We've had a lot of rabbit trails. Verse 11, Ephesians 4. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. So Jesus rides into heaven, the heavenly Zion, paralleling Psalm 68. He has victor. He, He beats everyone. He punks everyone. He takes everyone's stuff. He hands out the spoils. To his people, which are these spiritual gifts that he's pouring out on them. And further, he's handing out these gifts that are positions in the church. He speaks of, of, of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. This is a chronological sequence, which is very clear in terms of a cross reference. In 1 Corinthians 12:28. God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. It's a chronological sequence. Now, moving into the day that we are in now in the chronological sequence, the church is led by the position of the pastors and the teachers. Now, the purpose of these positions is very clear in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The job of the pastor is to equip you for the work of the ministry. That's why we place a premium on teaching the Bible. You're, you're here to learn something. It's a part of being equipped. The positions serve in that purpose— The purpose ultimately is the purity of the church. Draw your eyes at verse 13. Until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ belongs to the church. The church is the hope of the nations. Local churches around the world doing the mundane Sunday in and Sunday out. I think of all the institutions that have come come and gone in the last 2,000 years. There's only one pioneer chicken left. I remember as a kid loving Pioneer chickens. It's hanging on by a thread somewhere in L.A. You can find it. Think of all the institutions that have come and gone. Blockbuster, if we went back in time, you said this isn't going to last. There's going to be this thing called Netflix. You'd be like, yeah, get out of here with that. I like to walk in and look at my VHS tapes. Think of all the institutions that have come and gone. The church is still here thousands of years. And God is breaking out revival in his church through his word all the time, all the time. This is how he grows his church. Growth in doctrine, verse 14 of the text. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine and trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. This is, this is why I, I give some examples of false teaching because that's what you're supposed to do. That's what a pastor who loves you does. He warns you about the trickeries that are out there, lest we be led astray. In Hebrews chapter 5, we, we, we read about those who are stuck in the elementary principles of the oracles of God, who needed milk and not solid food. They, they can't handle the solid meat. They, they, they're not ready for it. They're still stuck on bottles. He says, what are you doing? You, people aren't teaching you. You're not growing in the Word. Solid food, Hebrews 5, is, is for the mature. You should be mature. You should be eating, eating that meat. What are you doing? What are you doing? If you're, if you're 10 years old, still nursing, like, it, it's not a good look, man. It, it, you, you should have stopped a long time ago. The, you should be growing in doctrine and in truth as a church. There is a saying, you are what you eat. As well, there is a saying, out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Speaking of speaking, verse 15... Let's land the plane. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects of him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of every individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here in this message, I wanted to explain and exposit the text of of Ephesians chapter 4. And give you the context of that world, which parallels very much our setting here in Los Angeles. To hear his charge of unity, of love, of devotion in the church. Uh, to, he- to hear the, the order of the church that he speaks of, and the orthodoxy of the church that he speaks of. And, and that so by doing and sitting before the word this morning, we have just a deeper appreciation for what God is doing at Delray Church. And what God will do as we walk in his order, ordinances, and orthodoxy one people one faith notice the repetition of one 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 we're one as he tears down dividing walls as he makes us one let us respond to his word now by coming to the community table as we have the table in front of us as we partake of the cup and the cracker we we are are picturing our oneness and it was at the cost of his death and when he died he did it all he paid it all the victory was his there was nothing left to do but to enter into paradise with the angels of glory saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come. Let's sing to him. Let's have communion. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your work in our church. We thank you for your hand that is upon us. I pray that the ministry of your word this morning will do uh, what you said in Ephesians 4. It will equip us for every good work. It will make us one It will make us filled with your love and your spirit. We pray for the ministry of your spirit who gives gifts to men, to women. And that, Lord, we would use those gifts that you give to us, these spiritual gifts, and even the other gifts that are in our life. We would be a people who share, a people who love, a people who give, a people who sacrifice, a people who put your church before everything. We put our church before everything, save for you and you alone. Lord, we are a culture that worships many things. We even take good things and turn them into idols. In our own families, we can make idols and place them over your church. May your church be the supreme family. Lord, pour out your spirit this morning, I pray. Receive these songs of worship, our offering and communion. In Christ's name, amen.